As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Uh, I'm Tim White, and as always, I'm joined by my dad, Professor John White. Hi there. Hi, feeling distinctly aged because I've just hit my seventieth birthday. So uh, there you go. Well, don't give away, don't give away too much, Dad. You know, identity fraud and all that stuff. You've got to kill that stuff tight to your chest. Oh dear. Uh, all right. Uh, but I'm it's, sorry an about that. it's an appropriate, an appropriate moment uh, because today's episode we're going to be doing a bit of a, a look back, a retrospective, um, uh, a matters of life and death episode about matters of life and death. Because as some people may may not know. The, uh, the podcast was inspired by or slash named after a book you wrote, also called Matters of Life and Death, uh, some 25 years ago, I think it is now. That's right, yeah. In fact, I'm just looking in the book to see when the first edition was. It was first published 1998. Oh, so, 24 yeah, years ago. 24 years ago, A quarter century, right. a quarter century it, ago. It, um, uh, it's a long time ago. <laughs> Yeah, and the reason so, we wanted to chat about it today is because you've, um, well, kind of inspired by the fact that you bring you're bringing out the first for the first time an audiobook version. That's right. I've had a. It's a very interesting experience actually because I've been sitting in this very small stu- studio with headphones on your head, with with the text in front of you on an iPad, and then you've got the voice of the of your producer Elliot. Um, in my in my ears saying oh, just do that sentence again or I need a bit more energy here or now you still yeah, go back and do that start again at the beginning of that paragraph and so on and it's actually a very intense and quite tiring experience you know so how long did it uh, take you to do the whole book I think it's about five days five full days in the studio yeah, um and well, let's hope anyway. some people buy it, eh? <laughs> <laughs> it's quite. But the, the, the big it's now available, or it, it will be. It is available on Audible and on all and other all the main podcast, uh, sorry, audiobook providers. Um, and um, combined with, I've actually done recordings of my of two other books, Right to Die and Dying Well, and on uh, Audible, it's possible to buy the three as a as a collection together at a very good price. We'll try and find a proper link to that in the in the podcast description on on your website. Um, but we want to do it rather than just doing endless uh, flanneling about how amazing the book is and how everyone should go out and buy it, which is true and they should. We wanted to do a bit of a, a bit of a. He said, a, "Give a bit more sincerity there, Tim." I think. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever read it? There's now now that now comes the truth. <laughs> oh, parts. <laughs> 
<laughs> parts, in parts. Yes. In part, the good bits. <laughs> Rather, I, I suspected. <laughs> um, uh, we wanted to, I really wanted to ask you a few questions about how you as an author kind of look back and, and feel about this first, the first book you wrote. And in some ways, the kind of beginning of your journey as an author and as an ethicist. Um, do you want to share, start off by talking a little bit about the story of the book? How, how did it come about? Because at the time in the 90s, you were, you know, working pretty full on in an intensive care unit in central London hospital. Um, you probably didn't have masses of time to become an author. That's right. And, and in fact, I never had thought of myself as, as an author, uh, although I had written short articles and, uh, and so on. But um, it was John Stott uh, who invited who me else? to give... That's right. Who invited me to give a, a series of lectures. There was an annual series of lectures called the London Lectures in Contemporary Christianity. And in fact, they're still going. And um, at that time, uh, there were, it was a, a group, normally a group of four lectures, which were given uh, in central London in a, in a lecture, big lecture hall. And so, I mean, it was a huge honour but but it was it was a very major business because as you say at the time I was working full time, both as a doctor and as a a medical researcher and academic and um, very pressurised. But it did feel like a an opportunity to try to um, sort out my own thinking, and and one of the things I've I've learnt so often is that you don't really know what you think until you try and write it down. And, and time and time again, I've had this vague idea, oh, yes, I understand that issue, and I know, I know what I think. And then I try to write about it, and I realise, actually, I don't understand this at all. Hmm. And I need to go back and think much more carefully and profoundly about it. So I did quite a lot of preparation and planning for these lectures because they were quite a high-profile thing. We held it in a, in a lecture hall connected to London University, and... Um, and there were about 250 people, I think, 200, 250 people, maybe 300 who came each week to this series of four lectures. And it was also very useful because after each of the lectures, there was a, an extended question and answer time. And and I find, you know, being challenged by um, being asked some very hard questions was really helpful in developing my own thinking. And there was a book contract between the organisers of the, the London Lectures and IVP, the Christian publisher. So it was really, that was the, that was the book. The book, the, the, the lectures were called Matters of Life and Death. And um, the book was published in the following year. And uh, it was an extraordinary struggle. I think looking back at the time, um, you know, I was just trying to, uh, find time in between um, evenings, weekends, and so on to to work on the book, and um, but eventually it was published, and um, rather to my surprise, it it uh, it was re it was well received. I think that's the thing that is um, yeah interesting to me is that you know with all due respect to IVP, they do turn out quite a large number of of kind of popular christian christian books each year i don't think they or even you expected that it would kind of have this afterlife and people still be reading it and and translating it and, and sending it around the world 24 years later no that's absolutely right and i, I think 
it just happened to fill a, a void that at the time there was there was nothing equivalent to that which which provided a kind of up-to-date overview of of many rapidly developing ethical issues and I had been very very influenced by John Stott as you well know and and in particular it was his book um, Issues Facing Christians Today I mean we've talked about this before I think but what I've those books were based on on some original sermons he did on these subjects and, and what he he managed to combine was a, a a real relevance a kind of based on authenticity based on contemporary news articles events comments and so on and then combining that with you know orthodox historic biblical christian thinking and and he pitched it. Interestingly, the book, you know, most publishers divide books into two categories. They're either popular paperbacks, which have a short half-life and, um, you know, and, and have very little academic weight. Or else you've got academic books, which is a completely different kind of book, which is, you know, detailed, many multiple references hard to read and very expensive. I mean, academic books often cost, you know, 60, 70, 80 pounds these days. Um, and Stott targeted his book, Issues Facing Christians to Life, absolutely in the middle of those two. So it was neither. It was, it was intended for ordinary lay people, but it had serious content in it. And I took that as a model, and this book was intended to do the same thing. I mean... The, pe the person I had in my mind when I was writing it was was not a doctor or a medic. It was it was a a Christian believer in a church who had no specialist knowledge about medicine, but who was deeply concerned about the issues and wanted something serious and weighty to engage with. So I was thinking probably you know an educated people, probably a graduate, probably. Um, with with some kind of professional experience, but but not in a medical field. And did um, you find that audience in your experience? Do you meet? Well, the like interesting that thing really? is, I think the interesting thing is, um, much to my surprise, it's found a whole number of different audiences. Uh, so I think it has found that audience, and and certainly a lot of the people who read it would fit with that kind of demographic. But interestingly, it's also a lot of doctors use it. In fact, the Christian Medical Fellowship has used it as a kind of standard textbook. Um, and uh, so it's, it's been used a lot by professionals, not just doctors, but by nurses, physiotherapists, other people. And then interestingly, it's been used quite a lot by Christian um, theological colleges, and um, so a number of times people have said to me, you know, I was I was studying theology at, at college and I had to do this essay on medical ethics and I went to the library and I found your book and it was so helpful and it's really changed my thinking. And um, so it, it is an interesting thing about a book is that it can actually have many different targets. But but also I have to say what you do realise is is that I mean, it, it's also been used by secular medical ethicists, um, which was not what I was thinking of, really. And I know in one medical school in South 
London, it's been used or it, in previously as a kind of an example of a religious-based approach to medical ethics, quotes, you know, to contrast with the mainstream secular approach. And even in RE classes, religious education classes at A-level, I think you, it's being used as a kind of, you know, if you're teaching ethics and you want to find a kind of evangelical approach to some of these issues, yours is one of the only books on the shelves. Is that right? Well, I think that is true, actually. And and one of the things that has often concerned me is that if you go into many schools across the country, and I'm sure this is true out, outside the UK, and you go into their library and you look under ethics what you'll see is a lot of really quite extreme, um, very, uh, you know, left-wing progressive ethics. People like Peter Singer and John Harris, you know, arguing strongly for euthanasia, even for infanticide, for free abortion, for human enhancement and so on. And these are the standard textbooks that are being used and taught for students and, and, Mm. and for high school students. So, so I, I think some teachers I know have used my book as a as a kind of an alternative perspective and and particularly it's been used in in religious studies. Do you feel a weight of responsibility as you've kind of intentionally or otherwise become the kind of British evangelical voice on medical ethics over the last 20 years you know does that feel concerning or weighty to you? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'd push back against that description because it's certainly an overstatement. There are a whole number of people who would, who would, who would be playing that role of providing thoughtful, um, authoritative thinking about medical ethical issues for, for evangelicals and and, and Protestant uh, churches. So, so I'm I I certainly am not the leading voice, uh, but I do. But yes, I mean. In answer to your question, the answer is yes, I do. I feel an intense responsibility because, um, you know, the words which Jesus said, woe unto him, whoever he is who leads one of these little ones astray. Hmm. You know, I think I think when you take on responsibility to try and, and guide other Christians in, about highly complex and controversial issues, yeah, you are taking on a very big responsibility. And, um, and that, and that, means that I I try to be fairly cautious about you know dogmatically saying what's right and what's wrong mm. and I also and I, I feel this quite strongly actually that that if I'm aware that there are other Christian believers who've come to different conclusions then out of integrity I really need to say that and give their views due weight I mean again that's something I learned from John Stott that you know however passionately I believe that this is right if I know there are other Christians who've come to other conclusions, I mustn't just ignore that. Um, I have to recognise that that other people who I respect ha- have wrestled with these issues and come to a different place. I guess in some way that reflects the ethos of this podcast as well, which is a hope, not attempting to kind of preach to people or create a systematic kind of ethics or theology, but is instead trying to encourage kind of thoughtful educated believers to to consider different ideas and to go deeper and to and and to to come to their own conclusions having properly engaged with the with the arguments rather than just saying this is the christian perspective you know god thinks x on stem cells or the bible says y on robots that's right i mean of course there are times when it would be much so much easier if there was a christian consensus 
you know, and if we could, if we could just confidently say, well, Christians all agree that X, Y, Z, but the the truth is there isn't that consensus, and therefore we just have to be honest. And uh, however painful it is to recognise that there are deep, deep differences, uh, we have to be honest that that Christians have come to different conclusions, and we have to respect them for that. of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. One of the things you told me in the past that is most surprising to you is is the international reach of the book, Matters of Life and Death, that it didn't take long before it was starting to be translated in, into other languages and, and has cropped up now in, in dozens of editions around the world. How did that kind of come about and why did that surprise you? Yes, it did surprise me. When I was writing the book and trying to think my head into the reader, I was thinking entirely of the UK and trying to explain the UK systems and UK thinking and the kind of issues that we were wrestling with in in the UK. And it was only after it was published that I started to be approached by uh, a number of people around the world saying that you know they'd found this book and they found it was really helpful and you know, would it be possible to think about a translation into and so on and so on and um, and it's ended up turning up in the most surprising places it's been translated into more than 10 languages and um, and in some quite unusual languages like Indonesian and um, a Russian it was um, a friend of mine actually offered to translate into Russia and, and, and stayed in our home and wrestling with that it. Actually. For, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, well, while I was still living, living at home, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I remember him coming and saying, why did you write this? You know, why did you say that human <laughs> beings are not like mushrooms growing in a field? What, what, what do you mean by this? You know, I'm, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> you didn't expect so, the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> no, exactly. And, and also, interestingly, he, he was saying that, you know, many of these technical words have no translation in in Russian and so he was then trying to find how other writers had you know taken something like reproductive technology Mm. or you know and 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 turned it into into Russian so uh, but and then sometime later someone told me that that actually they discovered that this book was being used in Moscow State University for um in the in the medical ethics teaching really? so you just never know do you what uh, and and that's the power of writing really you know that what that the extraordinary thing about a book is that once it's out there it's it's completely set free i have no no knowledge at all where it might turn up who might pick it up how it might be used how it might be interpreted uh, and it seems to be a miracle that is a miracle particularly when people find it helpful Mm. do you think it's spread and it's kind of popularity reflects the fact that not very many people particularly outside of the kind of english-speaking world there aren't many christian doctors doing this kind of ethical work and and that there is a desperate need even in you know what i imagine is quite a small church in indonesia where they have nothing in their there's no in in their native tongue yeah 
So I, I think what's interesting about these issues, you know, the things I try to grapple with about technology, about, you know, matters of life and death, abortion, euthanasia, reproductive technology, infertility and so on, is that these are global issues. I mean, medicine and technology is a global language. And therefore, and even in very low resource countries, I mean, I remember a friend of mine in Sri Lanka telling me that you know, just opposite where he lived, down the street, had opened up uh, an IVF clinic, you know, and, and and therefore the ethics of IVF was suddenly incredibly relevant. And, that, and that's true across the world. So I, I think there is a real shortage of, um, of relevant material. And I think there's no doubt that writing in English, you know, Eng English is the lingua franca of course mainly because of the power of america and american culture but it does mean that that english books are accessible in a way you know if, if i was writing in romanian hmm. you know it would just not be the same um and also i mean actually many countries including indonesia have a very significantly growing church and a, um and a very active church but and but they are finding you know there are a whole number of groups of, of doctors and others, Christian doctors in Indonesia, who are, are hungry for um, relevant material which, which relates the Christian faith to the, the kind of challenges they're facing in healthcare. And not that we at all want to draw any parallels between your work and scripture, but translation is and has been since the first century a, a core like value of, of of the church of christianity that it's always there's and, and it's been you know over the over the centuries over the millennia a lot of money and time and effort has been put into translating primarily the scriptures obviously into people's languages in the sense that actually we all have a responsibility to ensure that that our kind of rainbow nation of believers don't have to kind of westernize to become thoughtful educated Christians, but that there should be great theological resources, starting with the Bible and working up in their own kind of mother tongue. Absolutely. And, and one of the wonderful things about what's been happening post the pandemic, where I've been able to be involved in online discussions with Christian medics and doctors around the world, is it's a very much as a two way conversation. You know, it's, it's not that we in the West have got all the answers and we're dishing it out to other people around the world but there's i'm learning a lot in the engagements with doctors in other cultures about you know completely different ways of looking at the world issues of corruption and and the sound of low resource issues how you practice medicine in a completely different context so so it's very much a two-way conversation of of learning learning together which is very exciting to be part of hmm when you look back at the content of the book, the the actual stuff that you wrote, how do you feel? Do you wince at certain points? Have you changed your mind? Are there kind of glaring omissions that you can't believe you didn't include? Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's good questions. I, I certainly, you know, if I was starting again from scratch, the book would be different in some ways. But I have to say, in terms of the core kind of theological content... Um, I some I sometimes I wince just because it's it's rather naive, and I'll think, you know, actually, you know, that was that was pretty jejeune, and I I could have given a a, a better 
discussion of what it means to be a person or you know some of these deep theological issues which I think I've I've, I've advanced in my understanding over the last 20 years um, but the basic the basic outlines I I remain thankfully I mean there isn't a lot there that I that I feel is completely wrong I did have in 2009 this the current edition was published and, and I went through the entire manuscript with a fine tooth comb and updated and changed and added some new material so that and that's of course a great advance for an author to have that chance to mm. to edit and, and revamp and some of it was in response to criticisms that I've received from people who'd read the book um, or requests for clarification or, and so on and obviously new issues have have developed um, in in the time particularly more advanced technology so there's a whole lot of things going on now with neuroscience um, and with artificial intelligence um, with genetic science which at the time when I was writing these were just sort of fantasy ideas they were not they were not real whereas now many of them are becoming very much real so so I think uh, if I ever do a new edition or write another kind of book like this again it would be quite uh, there would be quite a lot of new material I want and of course that's one of the problems with these books you know they just seem to get ever bigger and bigger I mean and that's and then it becomes weightier and, and one of my concerns is uh, does anybody ever read it I mean yeah. um, you know which was part of the reason why I felt I, d I really wanted to do an audiobook version because you think that pe that people are far more likely today to engage with the content if it's delivered into their ears rather than into their eyes. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the interesting things as an author is is you can go to a bookshop or I've like quite often, you know, you're at a Christian conference and they have the bookstall there, and you go and visit the the bookstall, and however much you don't particularly want to, you can't you get fascinated by watching people browsing your books. Hmm. And and the commonest thing is you see someone pick up this book and they look at the cover and they look at the and they look at the back and then they flip through it, and you can see them thinking, mm, "Yeah, this is pretty heavy stuff." And then they put it down. <laughs> and I unfortunately I think that people's appetite, you know, they think, "Yeah, it's probably pretty important." And actually, one of the funny things that happens is that because particularly Christian Medical Fellowship were pushing it a lot, quite a lot of medical students and junior doctors bought the book, but never actually got around to reading it. And uh, and and you can they're slightly when you ask them they're slightly shamefacedly. Well, well, I have I have got it on my book books table, but um, I haven't quite got around to it yet. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so I. I th I think the problem with the internet, of course, isn't it, is that people's attention span mm. is so short, and the idea of picking up a book with two hundred and fifty pages, two hundred and eighty pages, and wading through it uh, page by page is for most people, I think, just too much these days. So, um, whereas I think the audio book does seem to be a much more accessible. Uh, kind of way of getting the getting the material out i mean it mirrors the rise of podcasting in a way doesn't it that you know pe people will listen to half an hour one hour 90 minute podcasts 
which if all that text, if all that audio was turned to text would be, you know, tens of thousands of words, you know, it would be a, a very lengthy magazine article maybe or something like that, which they would just flick over. But for some reason, I mean, mostly I think because it f- it's easier to fit into your day because you can do other things while listening. You can be on the train, yeah, you can exactly. be doing the washing up, you're walking the dog. It doesn't, whereas a book, you need to sit down and put everything else aside and focus and concentrate alone for, for an hour or whatever it is. Um, so certainly I can I can see that. I think there is, you know, I mean, I'm guilty of that. You know, I don't read as much as I would like to and I probably listen to too much, too many podcasts and audiobooks. But I think I can see that actually that is that is the way the world the world is going and and um it's probably sensible to to pivot in that sense if you want to if the core aim remains to you know to educate and inform people I suspect the way forward is to actually have a whole series of much shorter books you know with so you just have a book which deals with one issue issues at the beginning of life <clears throat> issue at the end of life or yeah potentially. You know, bioethics or whatever else it is um and that was part of the reason why i then went on and wrote the book right to die specifically about euthanasia and assisted suicide because although a lot of the content was similar to what was in matters of life and death i i knew that people were more likely to take it seriously if it was much shorter and 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 at a more popular level yeah and i suppose that um that kind of depackaging gives people you know as you say if you if you're if you're on a if you're browsing the bookstall at the back of your conference or whatever and there is a slim 120 page uh book there just for 5.99 or something you're much more likely to kind of the momentum carries it on there's not the same inertia whereas i think quite often you know i've got it i've i've bought books maybe 10 years ago a big chunky book on prayer or something like that that i'm like that looks really good i should really read that but every time I look at it on the shelves, I'm like, well, that's going to be a real investment of time <laughs> yeah, and commitment. I just haven't got the and time. And every month that passes where you haven't started it, it kind of <laughs> develops its own inertia and feels more it and does. more rooted to the bookshelf. It, it Whereas the, 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 I can see that if you pick up a slim kind of uh, single issue punchy exactly. read, you might that's... even read it on the weekend after the conference and, and, and it can kind yeah. of the momentum from hearing your talk pushes you through before yeah. you get weighed down by the rest of your life. I, no, I think, I think that's right. I mean... I just want to, I mean, before we finish, just just say something about the the, the wonder of of reading, though, because I, I think we're so familiar with it, we don't quite realise how utterly bizarre it is. But if you think what happens when you pick up a book and you open it, and what is in this book is simply a, a mar- some black squiggles on white paper. I mean, just some just some marks, some black marks. And yet, as your eye runs across these black marks, in some miraculous way, in your mind, is the thinking of another human being. You are following the thoughts and the perspectives and the ideas of another human being. And that human being might be long dead and come from a completely alien culture. And yet, simply by running your eyes across a few squiggles of marks, you are engaging and following and thinking thoughts of of somebody completely different from you and and that is a, a complete miracle i mean just speaking biologically and neuroscientifically there's absolutely no reason why that should work there's there's no there's no obvious biological reason why reading should be such an effective way of one mind communicating thoughts to another mind hmm. 
Um, and yet it is. And I can't help feeling, from a Christian point of view, that this is a miracle that God has put into human culture. But is Precisely. it more than that? Is it not because yeah. we are made in the image of a God who is literate, you know, who, who yeah. you know, Jesus is the logos, right. is the word. Yeah, yeah. And so... And who communicates Who communicates through words, Mm. and therefore we also have this power that no other species has to communicate through words, um, in part because there's a deep spiritual significance to it. No, well, I think that's true. But, but of course, that explains the kind of conversation we're having, you know, direct mind-to-mind, word-to-word. But it doesn't explain how I can pick up a book written by Augustine in, in 400 AD. Yeah. And in my mind, I am following the mind of a of a long dead Christian saint, and I can I can feel how he thinks. I can identify with him. I can follow, even to the most extraordinary detail, his life and so on. Hmm. I remember first having that same kind of wow moment when I was at university, and we got set to read some of Plato, um, and I was just you know trying to take some notes about Plato's. The Republic, I think it was, and I suddenly thought, this was this this guy lived five hundred years before Jesus was born, and obviously it's been translated from ancient Greek, but like I can still fundamentally engage with him as a fellow human being across two and a half thousand years of time and space. As you say, it, it is we get used to it, but when you step back from it, it is mind blowing. It absolutely is, and and that's why we shouldn't diminish it and, and that's why I still believe that writing um, books is a, a precious precious thing which we, we which we shouldn't disregard hmm. um, we're probably running out of time but just remind me I, I, I wrote on a, on a on an article earlier this year about the kind of decline of the Christian bookshop and spoke to a handful of people who run Christian bookshops and and about their thoughts on kind of you know are Christians reading less or is it just the internet is kind of cannibalizing all their sales and there was something very interesting one of them said, which was that, you know, someone once did research about 10, 15 years ago into correlations between congregations of churches that did lots of reading. And and they said that there was a, str- a very strong correlation basically with discipleship, you know, in a church where the, the Christians are reading, they give more money, they volunteer to, for more rotors, um, you know, they do more mission and social action. Like there is actually a correlation between churches that read or churches that are alive and in their faith and, and growing. Um, and so the de- the loss of the Christian book or the decline of the reading Christian probably should concern us more than it does. That is very interesting, but but it doesn't it doesn't surprise me. And and I, th- I think that reading, I think that if you want to have depth, if you want to have both intellectual and spiritual depth. Of course, it's possible to have spiritual depth with people who are completely illiterate, and, and I'm not saying that at all. But nonetheless, from a from a sort of thoughtful, uh, intellectual, academic sort of way, the only way you develop depth, I think, is is by reading and study. There's, there's no other route. <clears throat> um, but anyway, I'm sounding like a crusty old seventy <laughs> year old, which I am. <laughs> but even if you don't want to read, if if John hasn't persuaded you, uh, you could also engage with Matters of Life and Death via its audio version, now available on Audible and all other audiobook sites. Um, shall we draw a conversation to a close there? Then I think we should. Yeah. 
Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, uh, just a little one-off retrospective there. Uh, matters of life and death on matters of life and death. Um, I hope it's piqued your interest if you've not come across the book before. Um, uh, as always, you can find lots of material, including lots of material originally derived from matters of life and death on on John's website. That's john. Uh, that's johnwyatt.com. Uh, you can get in touch with us by emailing molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premiere.org.uk. I'm always interested to hear your feedback or suggestions for, for future podcasts. Um, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Um, speak to you then. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.